Hello, Jazz Session listeners. I am Jason Crane, host of the Jazz Session, announcing the 100 by 300 campaign. That's right, my goal is to get 100 members by the 300th show to keep the Jazz Session going, and you can join very easily. Just visit thejazzsession.com and click on either the join link at the top of the page or the one on the side of the page. There are monthly levels starting at 10 bucks a month. There are yearly levels starting at $110 a year. Please join the people who have already become members and help keep the Jazz Session going. The Jazz Session receives no external funding from any source uh, up to and including All About Jazz, and that means for me to keep doing it, I need you. Thousands and thousands of you listen to every show, and if you could find the, uh, the cost of maybe two cups of coffee uh, a month in your couch cushions, you can help keep the show going for years to come. That is the 100 by 300, 100 members by the 300th show. Join now at thejazzsession.com. Welcome to the Jazz Session. I'm Jason Crane. The Jazz Session is presented by AllAboutJazz.com, the web's leading source for jazz news, reviews, MP3 downloads, and more. Every episode of the show is available for free at thejazzsession.com. You can also subscribe via iTunes. If you go to thejazzsession.com, you'll find that you can become a member of the Jazz Session, and I hope that you will. For as little as 10 bucks a month or $110 a year, you can support the show. I'm looking for 100 members by the 300 show, and uh, I've already got 10 well on the way in the first few weeks here, and we'll, I hope that you'll add your voice to the mix. Something else that you can do to help me out, and this doesn't cost anything, is to go to podcastawards.com and vote for the Jazz Session in the Cultural Arts category. That's podcastawards.com, and uh, the Cultural Arts category, you'll find the Jazz Session. You just uh, click on the little uh, bubble next to the Jazz Session, type in your name and email, and they'll send you a verification email to make sure that you're a human being, not a spam bot of some sort. Uh, that might go into your spam folder, so uh, if you don't get an email within a few minutes, uh, check for that in your spam folder. And there's just a little link you click in the email to verify your vote. You can vote once a day until December 15th. So thank you already for nominating me. I'm, I'm very appreciative of that, and it would be great if you could go to podcastawards.com and vote for the show. One last bit of housekeeping uh, for, I don't know how many shows now, probably a hundred or more, uh, maybe the whole time, I can't really remember, I've been offering Amazon links to uh, the albums by the artists who are on the show. And the way that worked was that you would click on the Amazon link, you'd buy the record, and a small portion of your purchase price would come back to the jazz session. I've decided to stop doing that for a couple of reasons. One is uh, I was kind of disturbed by the whole WikiLeaks, Joe Lieberman, Amazon thing recently, which seemed to have some disturbing free speech implications. And uh, two, I also think that it's not the best way for you to support the artists. Um, certainly a small percentage of that money came back to my show, but I would prefer that you uh, just visit the artist websites, which are linked in the show notes to every show, and buy the record however they suggest you do it. Uh, you know, whether it's Bandcamp or, you know, CD Now or CD Baby or one of those services, uh, whether it's directly from the artist, um, they will tell you the way that they would 
find most useful for you to purchase uh, their records because I'm pretty sure that when you buy their records from Amazon, the, the percentage that they get is tiny. It's a, a tiny, tiny cut. And so I would rather give up you know, the, the few dollars here and there that come to me and have you give a greater percentage of your money um, to, right to the artists themselves. So uh, I'm not going to have time to go back and take all the Amazon links out of the posts that existed before. Um, maybe I will someday when the jazz session has a staff. Uh, but for now, uh, I'll just stop putting them up starting with this show. And I'll mention this one or two more times and then uh, and then we'll let it go, okay? So thanks very much. Uh, please go support those artists and buy their records. My guest today is drummer Gabriel Gloga. He has a band called the Dimaxian Quartet, and they have a brand new record out called Sympathetic Vibrations. Uh, it's comprised of three suites, and the first one is Hong Kong, and this is the first uh, section of the Hong Kong suite called At One. My guest is drummer and composer Gabriel Gloga. He and his band, the Dimaxian Quartet, have a new album called Sympathetic Vibrations, and it's my pleasure to have Gabriel on the show. Thanks for being here, man. Thank you. I'm delighted. Yeah, it's it's fun to talk to you. This is uh, another of the interviews that I've done. I think Jason Parker was another with someone uh, who I knew, you know, however you know people on Twitter, but, uh, you know, had followed you and you followed me and seen what each other was doing, and uh, it's fun to actually hear your voice uh, and hear your music. It's really great. Yeah, meeting again for the first time. Yes, that's exactly right. Um, so I, it seems like there's some... Uh, this music certainly stands on its own, but I think it's enhanced by knowing you know, some of the backstory, the things that would be the extras on the DVD. And so uh, maybe we can talk a little bit about the name of the band um, and, and kind of lead into Bucky Fuller and how he's influenced you and this music. Uh, sure, sure. I... Um I think I picked up Buckminster Fuller's uh, book, The Critical Path, maybe about ten years ago. And um, and for you know for people that aren't familiar with him, he was a uh, engineer, uh, designer, scientist, futurist, sort of a polymath, uh, who was born in the uh, about the turn of the twentieth century. And um, if anyone has ever seen you know the Epcot Center or is familiar with the Geodesic Dome, that was probably his most famous design. Um, 
And, you know, one of the concepts that has undergirded the majority of his work was uh, the concept of dimaxion, which is a, a portamento, I believe is the term, uh, of, of three different words, dynamic, maximum, and tension. And it was coined for him uh, by an ad man, I think, in the 30s, um, who, uh, who wanted to sort of promote some, uh, I believe, his Dymaxion house that he was building at the time, which was a highly efficient, prefab, futuristic house. If, if anyone uh, goes to YouTube and Google or types in Dymaxion house, there's some pretty fascinating videos on, on, on what it does and how it's designed. But... But the, the basic idea behind Demaxion is getting, you know, the maximum amount of output from every unit of input. Um, and, and, I, and I think I've always tried to do that, that musically as, as well, as sort of, you know, pack as much drama into every note as I can. But uh, uh, at the time that I was reading this book, I was also fascinated with the, the chordless quartet. I was listening to a lot of uh, Dave Douglas's quartet music at the time. Um, which was we, he had just put a new record out then, and um, and I was also listening to a lot of the late Beethoven string quartets, and and I felt that both of those groups expressed a you know a Dymaxion ideal in that um, every, you know every member of of the group was pulling its own weight, and and you didn't feel that there was anything missing in the music, especially in for instance Dave Douglas's music where there's you know there's no piano or guitar, there's there's no harmony instrument traditionally speaking um, and, and I never felt that there was one missing so I, I wanted to see if I could take that as, as far as I could with this kind of a group and, uh, and create a, a structure that was um, you know as, as complete as, as possible with that, that minimum amount of material sort of in every way whether it was melodically or harmonically or texturally or in terms of the form um, just get as much out of it as I, as I possibly could now, remembering that we're talking to a, a general audience, although certainly the Jazz Sessions audience is, is brilliant and, and charming and good-looking, but remembering that they are, they are generalists, can you delve a little deeper into that and talk about, for example, in the, in the context of a composition, is there uh, a concrete way to apply this principle of getting, uh, getting the most from the least amount of input? So, for example, does that mean you use contrapuntal techniques because there's no chordal instrument and you want to outline harmonies or how does that work when you're actually writing on the page yeah i mean that's that's a lot of it there you know every if you take think of it from the the context of a larger group uh where you have you have more instruments um and they can each contribute to what's happening in the music so you know a drummer would traditionally have uh a timekeeping role and a bass player would traditionally have um you know the, the the role of outlining the 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 bottom or the root notes of of the harmony and a, and a piano or a guitar would would be playing several notes at once that would create a certain texture or harmonic color um, and w- and then other notes like horns or strings or whatever would be would be playing melodic roles um, and kind of providing the the focus for for the music and when you strip a lot of those away. Uh, people have to do double duty, uh, so to speak. You know, so without a, for instance, as a drummer, when there's when there's no piano or guitar, often they're comping um, rhythmically uh, to kind of keep the the music moving forward, playing additional patterns. So so I have to do more than just keep the time. I have to provide some extra color inside of that. Certainly, counterpoint is a big uh, part of that. You can't just have the trumpet play the melody and expect it to be as 
um, as colorful as it would if there was a piano underneath it outlining a lot of the harmonies underneath that that would that would change the color of the notes he was playing so so i had to be very efficient about what notes that i chose to use in the saxophone for instance if the trumpet has the melody um, how can i use the saxophone to just play i mean i only have one other note <laughs> that i can use to create a certain kind of harmonic color so what is the right note that's going to create just that amount of tension um, and on a motivic level too um, you know how can i take a single idea and spin as much out of it as I possibly can. If it's a, a melodic motive uh, in the you know in, in the trumpet, say in the beginning, how can I um, how can I refashion that in as many different ways as possible? You know, turn it upside down, extend it, make it smaller, um, flip it around, uh, and, and move that throughout throughout the piece to create um, you know other other lines, other ideas that are moving throughout the piece that keep it moving forward. I'm not sure if I'm making this clearer or muddier, but... Uh, <laughs> no, I think you're uh, making it clearer. want to stress again that this music stands on its own even if people don't know anything about the stuff that's behind it uh, it's an album well worth listening to whether you're going to delve into the the philosophy or not but there's another layer on top of this too which is that uh, there's a, a, a visual component uh, to this record uh, certainly in its inspiration and also in the presentation of the record itself so can you talk about uh, the artist whose work informs uh, this comp- these compositions uh, yeah, yeah, I'd love to. Asa's a, a good friend of mine. Um, Asa All is a, a photographer, an American photographer, whom I met a few years ago um, in Soho. He had a show uh, down there at a gallery that my wife and I just sort of stumbled into serendipitously. And, uh, and I just fell in love with his work right away. He had a show at the time that was called Heaven on Earth, um, and he had spent three years living in three different cities, uh, Paris, Manhattan, and Hong Kong, and photographing, you know, every element of the city uh, that he could at all times of day, night, every place, every type of person, every season, um, and really trying to focus on um, on the culture of that particular city, sort of the pre-modern culture, if you will. And um, his aesthetically, his photos just looked the way that I wanted my music to sound. 
um, there was a sense of of stillness and of and of simplicity and of and of uh, lucidness or lucidity, I guess. Uh, and um, and I and I really appreciated that simple strength, but there was also a really strong emotional core to it. Uh, that resonated with me, and and at the same time, even though it was focused and simple, the the way that he framed the photos and the focus of the photos um, left a lot still to be filled in. So there was a sheen of of, of uh, mystery uh, on top of of what were, for the most part, very typical scenes. I mean, things that you would pass by every day or that you see very commonly, but but the way that he framed them uh, elevated that, I think, to another another level, sort of finding the beauty in these these common everyday uh, situations. And um, I feel like I'd always tried to do a, a similar kind of thing uh, with my music as well. And after I first saw his show, I went home that night, actually, there was one particular uh, piece called Spring Equinox, which is on the album, and it's the picture of of uh, the Spring Equinox in Paris, and it's this big full moon uh, behind a, a set of tree branches, and it reminded me of uh, a lesson that a, a composition teacher of mine in India many years ago had told me that's always stuck with me, and he said, you know, on some nights the moon is so full and the sky is so clear that it looks like you can just reach up and grab it uh, and pluck it right down from the sky. But it's only when you see the moon through the trees that you realize how far away it is. And it got me thinking about perspective. And so, um, I mean, I think this is actually a good example of that Dymaxian concept that I was trying to uh, get across in that, you know, I went home and I said, okay, how can this piece translate in, into music? And I wanted to see if I could write a piece where the melody was fixed and unchanging like that moon up in the sky. And, and the harmony kind of played the role of those tree branches. And so you saw the perspective on that one note or that moon continue to shift and change as the harmonies continued to shift and change underneath it. Um, and so, so, you know, I approached that by giving, uh, you know, a very fixed pitch melody to ultimately to the trumpet. And then, in the, the you know the tenor and the bass are playing these kind of flowing lines where the harmony is changing every every measure. And so hopefully you, you hear the color of that melody note continue to change. I think I tried to do that with all of the, with all the pieces there, um, all of the the photos, um, and try to try to explore the connection between music and, and sound, and how I think on a certain level all artists are are doing the same thing. They're all just working with ideas um, and, and with with constraints and how to express them. And so, you know, can we take the same idea and express them through different media and and can you hear or see the connection? What stays connected? What changes? How do I learn more about that idea uh, by seeing it through two different lenses? How do I learn more about myself through seeing that idea through two lenses? So I think that's what the project is, is really about. 
Yeah, that's so fascinating to me because I've always been really interested in the intersection between different artistic disciplines. Um, I think it was just a couple of weeks ago, Matt Jorgensen was on the show and he his most recent album is based on his father-in-law's paintings. And I, not too long ago was reading William Carlos Williams' poems based on Bruegel's paintings. And there, there are so many... Uh, there are so many ways that people from different disciplines approach translating someone else's work into their own into their own discipline, and it seems like in your case, there's a rather than just taking a, a programmatic cue from these photographs, you've actually taken a, a structural cue. You've actually tried to express the the underlying structure of the artwork through the structure of the compositions. Is that a fair statement? Uh, yeah, I think that's a very, uh, more than fair statement. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think I tried to approach it on, on three levels. You know, I certainly was looking for the emotional core, um, uh, beyond structure or, or before structure, however you want to think of it. Just how did the picture hit me? What emotion did I feel? You know, so, so Night Market, when I looked at it, was very frenetic and full of energy, you know, so I wanted to reflect that. And Midnight Mass was very, uh, solemn and, uh, and and filled me with a sort of a, a sense of awe and grandeur, but stillness at the same time. You know, so so I thought about how I can evoke that, but then I also, as you said, dealt with with structure. You know, in terms of w- what sort of story is this uh, is this piece telling, and how can I get that to unfold? You know, so um, Woolman's Rink is another example of of all those ice skaters on the rink in Central Park, and in that um, that rhythm of uh, or that's not rhythm so much, but that sense of of people moving all you know all around and in um, uh, you know with different <laughs> different agendas and, and and swerving in and out of each other. And so, on a contrapuntal level, how can I you know how can I use that idea between in this case the tenor and the trumpet? Um, and so, hopefully, you know people can can get a sense of that um, as well. Also tried to just play on some, um, you know, people's worldviews and, and and widely accepted connotations. You know, so so for the boat, um, I wanted to evoke the sound of a creaking boat. You know, and, I, and between the 
the bass, you know, and the tenor going back and forth on the bow, and me on the drums, you know, doing this kind of, um, you know, slow creaking sound. I, I hope to evoke some of those images as well. So I think I tried to approach it on a on a couple levels, but um, I've always been a, a fanatic for for form and playing with form, and uh, I think it's probably the most fascinating aspect of music to me. So I definitely tried to break it down in that department as well. Of the, uh, the the nine places or like nine aspects of places mentioned on this album, Woolman's Rink is the only one I've actually ever been to. And I was there in the bright sunshine, kind of a, an uncharacteristic time at the rink. And so I went, you know, to look at the pictures that accompany these tracks. And I was really brought up short by uh, the photography, which is so, so brilliant and such a different such a different look at a place that in one way is incredibly common uh, very impressed and I would highly recommend that folks uh, go online uh, the Dymaxian Quartet website will be linked in the show notes to this show and you can see uh, the photographs that, that match up with these tracks there um, we uh, have yet to mention uh, the people who are in this band so uh, would you do that? Uh, sure I'd love to um, uh, I've, I've been really lucky to know these guys and, and play with some of them for, for many many years um, Mark Small is uh, is playing the tenor saxophone. Uh, he and I met at the New England Conservatory um, when we were there back in 2000 or so, and he introduced me to Mike Shobe at the same time, uh, who he knew around the corner uh, from Berkeley, and we actually started playing in a similar format down there for quite a while. And then Dan Fabricator is um, playing the bass, and uh, I met him probably a year ago at a session uh, with a mutual friend uh, of ours, and I just really loved his playing. I thought it was very, very lyrical, and uh, he, he had a great way with the bow. And um, he uh, he liked to use double stops very tastefully, which I think is a, an important skill in a group like this. Um, double stops being more than one note at the same time on the bass uh, for the general listeners, as you said. Uh, so that always helps with my my uh, harmony needs in this group, but. Uh, yeah, it's just been a real uh, a real treat to to play with these guys and have them bring my music to life. I've been I've been really honored. This is completely self-serving, but Dan Fabricator because his name is so fantastic uh, appears in a poem that I wrote once that in which, in which he and Scott McLemore, a drummer who uh, lives in Iceland, uh, are explorers. And are you has, kidding me? No, it has nothing to do with their real lives, but uh, but yeah, the poem is called McLemore Fabricator and Buttonwood and they they travel throughout the land. These three, these three explorers. You, you so. got to send me that poem. Does Dan know about it? Ah, uh, yes, because I think Scott gave it to him uh, okay. when I when I wrote it this year. So, well, I'm gonna I'm gonna look for that. If it isn't, yeah. I want to read that. That's great. And I apologize in advance if you're disappointed. So, um, <laughs> not at all. You know, I, I I've uh, I followed your poetry when I can, and I I have to say we should talk about this some other time because um, uh, poetry's been a really big influence for me musically. Um, in fact, we have a show coming up in. Uh, uh, Thursday, the 16th, at Cafe Vivaldi, and we're going to uh, we're going to play a number of my uh, poetry-inspired pieces. One even has a a poetry reading in, in the piece itself. Um, but uh, I'd love to chat with you more about that sometime offline because it's always been a it, it's been a big uh, source of inspiration for me and and connection with music. I think. Yeah, that would be great. I'd love to do that. And so that's uh, December 16th at Cafe Vivaldi in uh, New York. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's correct. Okay, and uh, again, if folks uh, go to the uh, show notes for this episode, there's a link to the Damaxian Quartet website, and uh, they have a, a shows 
listing there on their uh, on their website, and you can check that out. I, I always try to ask this question when there are, I guess, f- uh, philosophical underpinnings to a record that are as explicit as as uh, for this record. Is it is it important for the other members of the band to a know about or b buy into the philosophical concepts that underlie the music? Yes and no. I think on a certain level, uh, no. Um, there's notes on a page, and uh, and the first. I mean, I look at it in terms of rehearsal, right? What's the what's the process for getting this music to to the point that you're hearing it in in your head, or or that you think it can be? And step one is just getting the notes on the page. Um, and so I, you know, I really don't like to introduce any philosophical ideas until we've gotten the music under our fingers so to speak so so there's you know there's running the heads there's talking through the the solo forms and and understanding how it works and when i think we've gotten a lot of those um logistics out of the way and some of the basics then then i may you know kind of subtly introduce the uh uh, the concepts uh, a piece at a time. I don't want to dump too much on them because I think I think it can become a hurdle to creativity in some ways if they feel that there are too many too many ideas that they need to bring in to the music. It's it's hard to be expressive uh, on your own. Um, but at the same time, and, and maybe it's just these musicians I've been very lucky with. You know, I, I think uh, I think they've they've taken the the sort of philosophical directions that i've that i've offered from time to time uh uh to heart um and and that plays a lot into into the music you know i think the the biggest challenge of a jazz composer is when do you when do you shut up and and give it over to the musicians you know who have spent their their lives learning how to become (laughs) skilled improvisers and how to say their own thing and and that's a lot of what jazz is about um, you know, in my mind, is is the expression of the performers, um, not solely the the composers. So finding that balance is difficult. But but I try to approach it in in this record, at least with with presenting sort of uh, you know improvisational games. I guess you know um, giving them certain goals to to try and to try and reach uh, that that aren't tied specifically to notes. So. So you know, solo three chorus is here, but it needs to build, and the release point is is here. Whereas not saying that they may create a different sort of arc within those three choruses that they have to play a solo, that that doesn't lead into the way I've orchestrated an exit uh, after that. So I, I try to find a, a, a balance without going uh, uh, too deep, you know. And, and I think I picked a lot of that up from. Uh, yeah, from Bob when I was studying with him, Bob Bob Brookmeyer, he was he was a big fan of of pragmatism, you know, and he used to always <laughs> used to always say when when we were leading the the big band at NEC and uh, and we would as composers inevitably start to talk about our inspiration, you know, he <laughs> he would give me advice like nobody nobody gives a shit about why you wrote it, faster, slower, louder, softer, start there, and uh, <laughs> and I think it was good advice because. <laughs> It's easy to start talking about poetry and stuff like that when when they really need to know is that an F sharp or an F natural, um, and so I, I've tried to approach it in that in that uh, spectrum or, or or stepwise motion, if you will.
That's great advice from Bob, Bob Brookmeyer. He's a really fascinating guy. Um, so, yeah, it's interesting to me... Uh, the the Brookmeyer connection because although it might it might initially seem somewhat unrelated uh, given that you're now composing for a much smaller ensemble there it certainly always seemed to me like Brookmeyer was always is always composing for kind of one organism that just had many parts and so a lot of his approaches to how you structure a composition um, really apply to an ensemble of any size. Absolutely. Um, I mean, one of the things that he he really stressed with me is is you know don't waste notes. Like like he he really didn't like um, slash marks, so to speak. Which which um, to a jazz musician means means improvise. Or you see it a lot in rhythm parts, like the bass or or, or the drums or or the piano, where they just write chord changes and, and slash marks, and it's your job to to come up with with the notes to put in there. Um, he wanted. He wanted me as a composer to always be expressing uh, a, a specific idea in in every part, um, and to treat every ensemble, regardless of its size, as you know, as a a composition, uh, as opposed to a you know a song that that you blow over. Um, not that there's anything wrong with that. I I, I do both, but um, but there's a that's definitely an approach that I took with this band. So um, you know, so I would write out a lot of bass lines, and you talk about. Um, how I, you know, dabbled with the philosophy and the direction, uh, you know, with the musicians, and and that was one of the things that we struggled with early. Is I would, you know, I had an image for for a baseline in my mind in terms of the uh, the certain phrasing that I wanted or or a rhythmic pattern that I wanted, but I didn't want to tie them down to the notes. So I would write out a lot of the baseline, and when they had gotten that, you know, I kind of give these lame directions like. Yeah, do that, but just different, you know, or or play it like that, but don't feel like you have to play that. Um, and so I, I think that that gets back a lot to the the Beethoven string quartets for me as as well, is that I felt that no one was ever really just being the accompaniment in those uh, in those late quartets. It's like it's constant melody, it's constant, it's constant motive, it's constant um, development of ideas in every part. And, and I think that's very Dymaxian, and that's something that I tried to bring uh, to to as many bars of this music as I could. In addition to the uh, December 16th show at Cafe Vivaldi in New York, are there other upcoming shows or, or projects that you'd like to mention? Uh, yeah, I, one that I'm really excited about is uh, going to be on February 4th um, at the Chelsea Art Museum. Uh, we're going to be uh, having sort of a Manhattan... CD release party uh, there for this album, and uh, the Chelsea Art Museum has been gracious enough to let us use their space, and we're going to be projecting the images uh, behind the band uh, while we play through it, and uh, talking a little bit about uh, the connection between you know the art and the music, and um, so it'll be a very, a very synesthetic event. But uh, but that's one that that uh, I'm really excited about, and I think people will get. The full experience of of what the album is is really all about it, and I don't even feel like it's an album so much as it's a it's really a larger project than that. This sort of collaborative work between between uh, Asa and I that's that's more than just just a CD in your CD player, uh, though it, it it works that way too. <laughs> Are there things I uh, haven't asked you about that you'd like to mention? Um, no, I think we've <laughs> we've covered a lot of great ground. Uh, you, you're a 
you're one of my favorite questionnaires uh, in this industry. I, I appreciate your, your thoughtful insight. Well, thank you very much. My, yeah. my guest is Gabriel Gloga. He and his band, the Dymaxian Quartet, have a new album called Sympathetic Vibrations that I highly recommend. Uh, it's been great to, uh, to meet you here, voice to voice at least, and I uh, hope to catch uh, one of your upcoming shows when I'm down in the city. And I thank you very much for being on the show. Yeah, yeah, I look forward to uh, meeting you again for the third time, face-to-face. <laughs> well, thanks very much, Gabe. I appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you, Jason. music from Gabriel Gloga and the Dymaxian Quartet, their new album, Sympathetic Vibrations. I'm Jason Crane. You're listening to The Jazz Session, presented by AllAboutJazz.com, the web's leading source for jazz news, reviews, MP3 downloads, and more. Every episode of the show is available for free at thejazzsession.com, where you'll also find a membership section where you can join. You can subscribe to the show in an RSS reader or via iTunes, so you're always up to date. And I hope that you'll do that. I also hope that you'll go to podcastawards.com and vote for the show in the cultural arts category. And if I can also suggest uh, that you vote for citizenradio.com, they're in two different categories. Uh, fantastic political show, and uh, I highly recommend them, Citizen Radio. Uh, their website is wearecitizenradio.com. Thanks to the Respect Sextet, they composed the music theme music for this show. Uh, they are at respectsextet.com, and you uh, can buy their records there, including the most recent one, Farcicle Built for Six. Thanks also to Dave Rabel, who designed the show's logo. Thanks a lot for listening. I really appreciate it. I hope you'll become a member. And in the meantime, I hope you'll get out there and support live jazz whenever and wherever you can. And then come back next time for another conversation about jazz on the Jazz Session. Bye. Bye. Bye.